Yeah, it's the 73rd QuackCast. Whoa. As you may have guessed, I'm doing a whole bunch of these in a row. I'm sitting outside on a beautiful sunny day in early September in the great Pacific Northwest. And if you are listening to this without having listened to 71 and 72, you are unaware of the fact that there may be extraneous noises like birds and fountains and cars, oh my, as I do this particular QuackCast. This one is called The Annals of Internal Medicine Qualifies for Fail Blog. And if you haven't gone to Fail Blog, I recommend you go because it is hilarious. As most listeners to this podcast know, I am mostly an infectious disease doc. I spend my day diagnosing and treating infections and infectious complications. I have said many times it is a simple job. Me find bug, me kill bug, me go home. Kill bug. It is a key part of what I try and do every day. And if there is karmic payback for the billions of microbial lives I have snuffed off this earth in the last 25 years, my next life is not going to be pleasant. I will probably come back as a rabbit in a syphilis lab. In case you didn't know, the way you transmit Syphilis over time is by injecting it into rabbit testicles, then harvesting them and injecting that into the next rabbit, and so on. It is always fun when my hobby, which is writing for science-based medicine, crosses paths with my job. This month, the Annals Internal Medicine published Olsitamivir compared with Chinese traditional therapy, maxing Shingan Yingai-san in the treatment of H1N1 influenza. A randomized trial. Now, I thought Big Pharma was good at coming up with names that I do not know how to pronounce. I think it would be very nice if new drugs came with a pronunciation guide, but that never seems to happen. So, from here on out, I'm going to call it MY, because I'm sure that I'm going to get the Chinese completely wrong. What is MY? It's 12 herbs. One better than the kernel. And speaking of pronunciation, why is C-O-L-O-N-E-L pronounced kernel? But anyway, they have 12 herbs, but no spices. And it contains a bunch of herbs that I will only embarrass myself if I try to pronounce them. Although one of them, honey fried herba ephedre, sounds delicious. You can look it up on the interwebs if you want to know the components of the 12 herbs. I will spare you my mauling of Chinese. It is quite the melange of products. Could there be antiviral or immunomodulating molecules in such a hodgepodge? Certainly. There is no a priori reason why MY would or would not have efficacy against influenza or its complications. Now, why test MY? Well, the reason is partly an appeal to antiquity. Quote, traditional Chinese medicine has been used to treat seasonal influenza for thousands of years, end quote. They have a reference that, upon searching, does not contain the word influenza, or pneumonia, or respiratory tract infection. Hmm, you have to wonder. When you are in the second paragraph of an introduction and Upon looking up the primary sources, you find they do not match the text. You just have to wonder how careful the researchers and 
the editors of the journal are. Well, it's the annals of internal medicine. You know they're not very careful, which is why my subscription lapsed years ago. And to demonstrate just how infantile I can truly be, when I discuss the annals with the residents, I pronounce it as if annals had only one N. But do not accidentally type that in as a URL at work, because annals spelled with one N gets you to a website that's not safe for work. I discovered that our firewall filter has a weakness for annals.org. And who knew that could be an organization? In Europe, pandemic influenza has been recognized for perhaps 500 years. Quote, then suddenly in July and August 1510, a gasping oppression. God, I love that term, the gasping oppression. With cough, fever, and a sensation of constriction of the heart and lungs began to rage, seemingly everywhere at once. And local flu has been around for, oh, maybe 650 years. Given those numbers, suggesting that influenza has been around and treated in China for thousands of years seems like a wee bit of hyperbole, especially when the reference doesn't support the assertion. As best I can tell from the Googles, no influenza was reported in China until the 1800s. And given the traditional diagnostic modalities of Chinese medicine, feeling the pulse and looking at the tongue, I doubt they were looking at patterns of disease that would be identified today as influenza. Then the authors say, quote, in a recent meta-analysis of 31 randomized clinical trials, including 5,514 cases of influenza, the authors concluded that TCM, traditional Chinese medicine, had significantly increased clinical efficacy compared with placebo or no intervention. End quote. Huh. So I go to the references. What was the analysis? A systematic review of Chung Hongming, I guess I'm mispronouncing that too, for acute respiratory tract infections in the Chinese Archives of Traditional Chinese Medicine, 2007. And the abstract says there are 31 randomized controlled trials with 5,514 cases. That's 5,514 cases of acute respiratory tract infections, not, as the authors say, 5,514 cases of influenza. Now, I may be slapped down for that. The original is in Chinese, and there is nothing on the PubMeds relating to the underlying drug that was tested. So, looking for the primary references of the systematic review as best I could, given the language issues, the Googles finds that, quote, etiological diagnosis by clinical experience and tissue civilization experience shows namely the product of an activated influenza A type 1, 3 type A, pneumonia, adenovirus 3 type, 4 type, intestinal syncytial virus, whatever the hell that is, and respiratory syncytial virus have inactivation, end quote. Huh. And the few trials I could locate were a hodgepodge of other viral and other upper and lower tract infections. Chuan Hunging is not in the current regimen to be tested, and the authors of the systematic review mention that the evidence is not strong due to the poor methodological quality, end quote. So, they quote drugs that are used in one trial, but are not going to be used in the trial at hand. The argument, 
and it's not supported by the reference for testing MY is product A may work for influenza, so let's try an entirely different product for influenza. Seriously, could the editors of the annals be doing a worse job at reading the papers in their journals? Then they mentioned, quote, modern pharmacologic studies demonstrated that some TCM formulas had antiviral and immunomodulating effects. And they reference modern pharmacology research and clinical use of Max Ing Shigan and the immunomodulating effects of Maxing Shigan on asthma mouse models. At least both references have Maxing Shigan in the title, but whether the content matches the assertion, well, let's say their credibility has not been demonstrated. And the original texts are all in Chinese, so I can't read them. Of course, no study of Eastern or alternative medicine would be complete without an appeal to popularity. During the early days of the 2009 H1N1 influenza A pandemic, the popular herbal formula MY was used widely by TCM practitioners to reduce symptoms. Years ago, at one of my conferences, one of my attendings was being detailed about a new antibiotic, and the rep finished with, and is popular in Europe. To which my attending replied, so is Hitler for a while a pre-interweb version of Godwin's Law. Popularity is not necessarily a good reason to see if something is efficacious, and certainly when popular alternative medicines are shown to be ineffective, it doesn't seem to affect their use whatsoever. Searching for MY in the PubMeds yields little but the intriguing yet unavailable 235 cases of high fever caused by exopathogen treated with MY. I went through the tedium of searching each component of MY in the PubMeds and its relationship to influenza, and I found nothing. So at the end of the day, when you go back and look at all the primary references and look at all the quotes by the authors, the only reason to do the study, really, is that people were using it. Let's see if it really works. So here's what they did. They randomized people with mild PCR-proven influenza to, quote, ulcitamivir, 75 milligrams twice a day, MY, 200 mils four times daily, ulcitamivir plus MY, or no interventions. These were all given for five days. Primary outcome was time to fever resolution. Secondary outcomes included symptom scores and viral shedding determined by using real-time reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction, end quote. So it was really sciency. It was not blinded, but this is only a small flaw given the endpoint, and most patients did not receive any intervention until relatively late in their disease. So any impact that you would have would be small. Quote, in our study, the median time from onset of illness to randomization was 34.5 hours. 23.2% of patients presented 48 to 72 hours after onset of symptoms, end quote. So this is late enough in the course of influenza that I would be surprised if any intervention had efficacy. Once you get to three days in normal people, the effect of ulcitamivir is marginal at best. Emphasize normal people. 
sooner is better with the treatment of all acute infections. And given the delay in therapy, the authors are approaching a natural history of influenza study more than they are a therapeutic intervention study. Here's what they found. Quote, significant reductions in estimated mean time to fever resolution compared with the control group were seen with olsatamivir, MY, and olsatamivir plus MY. Time to fever resolution was reduced by 19% with olsatamivir plus MY compared with olsatamivir. The interventions and control did not differ in terms of symptom scores. So all they defervesced faster, nobody felt better any faster. And the actual numbers? Well, the control had fever for 26 hours, olsatamivir for 20 hours, MY for 16 hours, and olsatamivir plus MY, 15 hours. In real numbers, the results were almost but not quite clinically irrelevant. And the treatment groups were randomized later than the no treatment group. And they started measuring temperature after they were randomized. So if the treatment groups have a head start in treatment measurement, that wipes out most of the therapeutic advantage. Most of the difference is actually due to when they started counting. If you measure from onset of symptoms, which is a gray number, to resolution of fevers, you actually get control 56 hours, MY 51 hours, olsatamivir 55 hours, and MY plus olsatamivir 47 hours. So most of the effect disappears when you correct for when the patient started to become ill. It is the duration of illness that is clinically important. So even if the effects are statistically significant, the difference is not clinically significant. And besides fever, there was no improvement in other symptoms. Quote, no difference in any individual symptom, including cough, sore throat, headache, or fatigue, was observed after treatment, end quote. Fever often remits before other symptoms of influenza, and given the duration of illness, from a clinical perspective, none of the interventions did much of anything. Basically, no kids go into school sooner, no kids come into work sooner because they were taking these medications. As to viral shedding, quote, the mean viral titer in throat swabs and enrollment was similar, and a rapid decrease in virus shedding was observed in all four groups. Changes in virus shedding from baseline to day five did not differ by treatment group. And when you look at the actual curves, there's not that much difference. There is a separation between the olsatamivir-containing regimens and those without, with the MY closer to control. It suggests that the effect of MY is actually antipyretic immunomodulatory rather than antiviral. The slopes of the MY and the slopes of the control were pretty much the same. And given that the control group started their PCR measurements earlier, as you would expect, they had slightly higher viral levels. So if there is an effect from MY, it is a small one. It appears to be less antiviral and more antipyretic. Although the authors state, quote, the study could not determine whether the observed effects of MY were due to antipyretic 
or antiviral effects, end quote. I agree, but I bet the former. Given that the patients were all healthy, had mild illness, and were treated relatively late in the disease, I would expect any intervention to have a modest effect, and theirs was modest indeed. Non sequitur central continues in the discussion where they discuss potential mechanisms of action and note during the outbreak of severe acute respiratory syndrome in Hong Kong, Poon and Associates showed that two herbal formulators had immunomodulating effects. In their study of healthy volunteers, they found that the CD4 or CD8 ratio of T lymphocytes was significantly increased after participants received Chinese herbal medicine for 14 days. And the reference? Well, the reference was immunomodulatory effects of a Chinese medicine with potential antiviral activity, a self-control study, which states that they investigated the immunomodulatory effects of an innovative TCM regimen described from two herbal formulas, Sangju Yin and Yu Pin Fen San. Huh, so much for my Chinese for treating febrile diseases. Now, I am limited by language and variability in TCM medication and the ever-so-lousy editors at the annals, but apparently Sang Ju Yin is mulberry and chrysanthemum pills and Yu Pin Fin San is jade screen tea pills, and neither have any ingredients in common with MY. So why point out that one medication has immunomodulatory effects when you're testing an entirely different medication? Oh yes, interferon 6 has immunomodulatory effects, so we're going to test PPIs. This makes no sense. How do San Ju Ying and Yu Ping Fin San have anything to do with the mechanism of MY? This is the kind of discussion the annals has for its readers. Randomness. Linear logical thought appears passe these days. The authors seem to think that all TCM are the same, and there is no reason to differentiate one TCM medication over another for mechanism of action. More studies are needed to clarify the mechanisms of TCM, end quote, as they say. How about for each individual medication? But that's me and my reductionist Western approach, thinking that different products with different constituents are actually different, with perhaps, oh, I don't know, different and unrelated mechanisms of action, if they have a mechanism of action at all. There were articles, again not available in English, that demonstrate in vitro effects of Shigan on influenza A. That the references indeed demonstrate what the authors purport, well, I have to trust the researchers and editors of the Annals of Internal Medicine. I mean, they have done such a fine job to date. Now, it would appear from one abstract that 31.25 milligrams per mil of Maxine Shigan had multiple effects on viral replication in the test tube, and that 31.25 milligrams per mil was an optimal concentration of the product. Now, in this study, the patients received 200 mils of MY orally four times a day. So, for hoots and giggles, let's assume 100% bioavailability. And let's assume there was 31.25 milligrams per mil in the preparation that the patients received. Who knows? They don't state. So 200 times 31.25 is 6,250 milligrams. So a human volume is about 7,000 mils. 
Assuming a uniform volume of distribution, that gives the concentration of MY in this study at perhaps around 0.89 milligrams per mil. Remember that they thought 31.25 was the optimal concentration. This seems a wee bit below the needed MIC. That's the amount of drug required to inhibit an organism. Of course, there's a lot of assumptions in that calculation, mostly concerning the concentration of the medication, its absorption, and its volume of distribution. The first and third were guesses. The second was a large overestimation, since medications are rarely 100% absorbed. The real concentration of MY in these patients was probably much, much less than 0.89 milligrams per mil in the blood. Of course, 50% alcohol will also inactivate influenza in vitro. And outside of a frat party, those levels are not achievable in human beings. There always is an issue going from in vitro studies to in vivo studies because of the difficulties with pharmacokinetics. The authors finish up with, quote, in conclusion, in previously healthy young adults and adolescents who presented with uncomplicated 2009 H1N1 influenza A infection, therapy with olsatamivir and MY was associated with faster resolution of fever. And the abstract, which is all most people will read, ends with, these data suggest that MY may be used as an alternative treatment of H1N1 virus infection, end quote. So, here's where I'm going to get picky. My take, looking at the PCR data, is that MY does not treat influenza. There is no change in PCR viral concentrations. When you treat an infection, you kill it, or at least you prevent it from reproducing. They did not treat influenza. They treated an epiphenomenon of influenza, the fever. And treating a fever is not the same as treating an infection. Of course, it looks like the effect is an artifact from when they started counting, and given the lack of response of other symptoms, I think this is mostly a natural history of influenza study. And should you treat a fever? Well, no. There's an interesting literature, many with methodological issues and mostly ignored by doctors and nurses, that treating a fever is not a good idea. In animal models and human studies, treating fever is associated with more prolonged illness and, depending on the study, increased mortality and increased morbidity. There is no definitive study, but if you spend an hour on the PubMeds perusing the literature, it will show an interesting pattern. Fevers are usually good. Treating fevers is usually bad. Fevers are an important and ancient response to infection. Most parts of the immune system function better at higher temperatures. Sometimes patients lack the physiologic reserve to cope with the metabolic demands of fever, you know, poor cardiac function, poor lung function, and strokes and heart attacks may become larger if the patient has a fever. So sometimes you need to treat fevers. But for most acute infectious diseases that have been evaluated in patients and in animals that have their fevers suppressed are more likely to have more prolonged illness, more complications, and increased mortality. I never treat my kids' fevers. They make less noise when they are 102, and I can get work done if I'm home with them. And 
it will probably resolve their infection faster if I let the fever go. That will get them back to school quicker and me back to work sooner. However, when I go to work, my wife gives them Tylenol. No man is a hero to his valet. Not that my wife is my valet, mind you, it's just a saying. I could find no specific data regarding outcomes of treating influenza-associated fevers, but I expect, like most other infections, it would be a bad idea. And there's always the point in the inflammatory response where the beneficial effects are overwhelmed by the adverse effects of too brisk a response. SIRS, sepsis, toxic shock, and the ever-popular cytokine storm, though the fever per se is not an issue in those processes. What annoys and concerns me no end is the confusion between treating influenza and treating the symptoms of influenza. The first was not demonstrated, the second perhaps was, and even if it was, it is usually a bad idea. I think the Annals of Internal Medicine editors no longer read their articles critically. So in conclusion, the effects of MY on fever are probably not real, and if real, are mostly clinically irrelevant and probably counterproductive to the treatment of influenza. As to the mechanics of the paper, proper use of references, critical thinking, if I were grading a college student, I'd give them a C with the benefit of the doubt. If this was from a resident on service, flunk. In the annals, in my professional lifetime, they have gone from a first-tier journal to a second-tier journal to now... Now I just shed a tear. They are almost as funny as fail blog. And that ends the 73rd QuackCast. Of course, feel free to go online and write me glowing reviews. Feel free to visit my website, moremark.squarespace.com, where you will find links to all my podcasts and my blogs and my books and my confessions. No, not really. I have nothing to confess. I will see you next time for... A quack cast number 74, which I hope to do this evening, or not. I have to go make a corn and tomato pie for dinner at the moment. See you later, guys. Bye.